Hello, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before this week's episode. As you know, we've been recording our episodes remotely lately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so please excuse the slight dip in audio quality. I also wanted to give a shout out to all the nurses, doctors, and medical professionals working every day to save lives. Y'all are the real heroes, and we love you. And now, here's the show. From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody. We are very excited to announce our collaboration with the Austin Film Festival this year. This is our second year working with one of the best film festivals in the world. And the festival is running virtually this year due to the pandemic, so you can check it out from anywhere and everywhere. The festival runs from October 22nd through the 29th. They have an incredible slate of films, discussions, panels. It is the Writers Film Festival, so if you are a screenwriter, make sure to buy a pass because you're going to learn so much. I learn so much every year. But looking forward to learning so much today, we are talking to the co-director of one of the best documentaries that the film festival has to offer this year. The film is Bato. We are joined by one of its directors, Lucas Millard. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Flattered. Flattered. Yeah, I, I really, really loved it. Tell the audience about Bato. Sure. So Bato is a observational documentary that takes place in the eastern Himalaya of uh, eastern Nepal, the Himalaya of eastern Nepal, and follows the route of a road that's getting constructed that is promised to become one day a major throughway between China and India, kind of if you picture in your head north of Calcutta and the Bay of Bengal is where the where it takes place and it follows the story of a family that is traveling as they do every year as their entire village does every year with dried medicinal herbs that have been collected from the jungles and they travel with them in order to sell them in the market cities which are generally to the south of their village so it's a journey along this route that's becoming um transforming you know kind of a a disappearing world story Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What drew you to this story or how how did you even find out about it? Because it's, you know, you're in such a remote area and how did you find out about it? How did you get the project initiated and how did you get this amazing access to this family and like go on this journey with them? Yeah, it is. It does seem when I think about it, I think it does seem a little strange, especially as a first feature documentary. I, Mm -hmm. it's a long story. I'm always challenged to compartmentalize it. But my first experience in Nepal, in particular in this region of Nepal, was when I was in my early 20s. I went on a study abroad, year-long abroad program in Kathmandu. And I, I was really immersed in the culture at the time. And I put, I, I put together a research project as part of that academic program. I was studying anthropology at the time, and I studied the transportation, the modes of transportation in, in, in the same kind of region that this film takes place. So it's been something that I've been thinking about for a long time. At that time, everybody was just in the villages there were talking wistfully about roads and musing that they were aware that, that, that America was much more developed and that every house had a road to it and musing about how great that would be. And then lo right. and behold, 20 years later, it started to become a reality. I went back again with the co-director of this film, my wife, 
um, Kate Stryker because the area had made such an impression on me back then in the in the mid '90s, and I, I was dying to just show it to her. And so we managed to go back under the premise of teaching some workshops in Kathmandu, some filmmaking workshops in Kathmandu, and then we had an extra month because it's, we took a we took a whole winter to spend over there. And so for that last month, I took her. We took a trip back to this area that I'd done research in, and I hadn't been there for 10 years at that point. Um, I did go back once in between, but um, it was just hit us on the head because you, you can, it's, you know, the physical scarring of the earth from roads are hard to ignore, and they're quite visual as well. And so when I saw these, you know, villages that used, used to have to walk days to get to, all of a sudden, you know, accessible on a Jeep ride, you know, and not, maybe not the most comfortable transportation mode but you, you could get there pretty quickly and uh and so you know and it was apparent that things were changing pretty quickly and so yeah we put together a proposal we shot a couple vignettes on 16 millimeter when we were there actually i had a wind up um bolex camera and we nice. we used that as kind of a springboard to try to fund the film and we ended up with a fulbright grant which was amazing and got to spend nine months living in eastern Nepal and filming um, stories along the, the route of this this coming highway. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. Did you know the family before you started, uh, you know, like before you made this proposal, the family that you follow as they go to sell these the medical herbs? Did you know them before? Were they open to having you follow them around or were they, you know, a little a little freaked out at first? Yeah, people do ask that sometimes. They're curious. I mean, the the project was originally going to comprise of several stories along this road, and it does in the end. There's three stories that make made the cut, mm-hmm. but the focus of the film was always on the road and trying to tell the story of the road through the perspective of the people who live in that region that travel along it either for, you know, some people travel for school or for work or to visit family or whatever it is. Like we had come up with a list of 20 or two dozen different quote unquote characters that we thought, you know, we could try to explore and find as we went. The story of the migration, which actually ended up becoming the film, the heart of the film, really. Mm-hmm. We filmed kind of in the same way that we were filming all the stories. We would we would show up somewhere. We would start talking to people. We would meet people. And I don't want to overgeneralize it. We had a little bit of help gaining trust of people in this village in particular because the first time that we traveled up into the region, we went with a friend. We hired a we didn't know him at the time, but he's become a friend. We hired a local young man from that village who was living in Kathmandu and still does live in Kathmandu. And he kind of took us up. You know, he, we told him what we were doing. We were going to, we wanted to go make a film. We wanted to meet people. So he was, he understood what the project was. And we, we kind of, you know, we, we hiked together back to his home village. He was excited to go back too, because he hadn't been back for a while and doesn't get to go back that often because it, it's a, seven day journey from Kathmandu or it used to be, you know? And so we talked along the way, he, the whole, the whole way he, he related stories about when he was a kid and he would go on Kabila, this migration with his family. And he would point out all the places along the route where he would, he would have camped 
and um, they would travel in even bigger groups in the olden days, apparently. And it, was, it just brought up such good memories for him because it was an exciting time to be a kid and do that. And right. Was. And so, and so that was, you know, we were like, that's definitely something we need to include, you know, that was like kind of part research, part just, you know, hearing his stories. And so when we were in the village, you know, through his family, we stayed with his family pretty much every time we went to the village, we stayed with his family and there, they had a grain house kind of adjacent to their house and they let us stay, stay in there. And so we had some contacts and we made some friends in the village and we would ask them to make introductions for us, to, you know, if we, if we ever needed to. And, and the, in the case of Mi'kmaq and her family, you know, somebody made introductions on our behalf and the request and we heard that they had agreed to participate. We didn't ask them directly. So when we, when we first met the family as a family unit, we had met, I had met Mi'kmaq, Kate and I had met her in a field when she was, the first time you see her in the film, she's winnowing rice and that's the first time we had met her. Mm-hmm we knew of each other, I guess we had talked briefly and they were just, it was just, I'm still surprised that they, they just kind of let us descend upon their household the very day that they were getting ready for this massive, (laughs) the very morning. I mean, can you imagine if you were going to go to, you know, visit your great grandma, you know, for, two weeks and you're getting ready. And on the morning of the, the film crew shows up and says, Hey, is it okay if we just tag along with you? <laughs> but they said, right. They right. No problem with it. So it, it's just one of those things. It's, it's, it's people ask me why I, I like the Himalaya so much or what attracts me to that part of the world or why, you know, what about it felt so special to you. And it's just things like that where like the generosity and the hospitality and just like concern for the well-being of the community is so great in the villages in the Himalaya. It's, I mean, of course there's, I'm romanticizing it a bit. There are local, you know, there are endemic problems and there are, you know, squabbles between neighbors. It's not like the paradise, but just the baseline acceptance that they have for the world around them. And, you know, just kind of like take it as it comes with a good attitude you know, there's lessons to be learned there, I think. And that was part of the reason I wanted, I was motivated to tell these stories is just to, so that people could glimpse a, a little corner of, you know, how, how people operate over there. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's also breathtakingly beautiful, what you capture so, so wonderfully in your film that, you know, just beautiful landscapes, beautiful Himalayas. One of the scenes that is the most impactful is seeing the crane like tear up the land for the first time. And you see the reaction of this one woman and she, you could see how kind of uncomfortable she is and how unsure she is that this is the right thing. It's, it's really breathtaking to watch. I want to ask you what that experience was like for you to kind of like be there, be privy to seeing this land kind of like transformed. What was that like for you to see that happen? And and what was kind of like the, the vibe um, you know, around the village as it was happening. I mean, I think I, I could answer both. With we were, we were all a little bit nervous and anxious about what was happening. We didn't know going in when we were walking in that they had already begun construction. There's a certain section. The lower section of the road was kind of carved out already because there's a big hydroelectric dam project there. And up to there, we knew like, okay, the road's going to be, you know, nav- navigable for you know, four, four wheel drive vehicles, maybe not for buses all the way, but for four wheel drive vehicles. And then after that, we thought, you know, stuff was kind of starting to roll 
but we didn't expect to see any major construction or breaking ground of this highway project until we got to the village where Mikma is from. And we heard that they had, they were already starting, we had rumors that they were already starting construction. And we got to where the, where they were starting construction, which was basically right at the border, uh, the Northern border. They had just come up from the river, which is the border with Tibet, the autonomous region of Tibet, which is within China. You know, we weren't expecting to start filming right away. So we, (laughs) when that scene happened, when we were, you know, we were kind of scrambling to figure out what, who we were going to be filming, what we were going to be filming. And we didn't have time to, you know, get to know anybody in the village without, we we just felt like we needed to break out our cameras right away and just meet everybody with a camera in hand rather than, rather than the documentary trick, which I totally understand gaining trust of your, you know, I hesitate to even call them subjects because they really participated. I mean, they were really, you know, our, our collaborators in letting us do this. And we, yeah, we introduced ourselves to the road crew and said, this is what we're doing. I don't think they really understood what we were doing, but we said, you know, we were making a documentary. We're interested in the road and we want to, you know, film the road construction. Nobody seemed to have a problem with that. So we would go down and hang out with the, with the construction crew and film then. And, and as villagers would come and curi- curiously look and see what was happening because there wasn't a lot of communication between the crew and the village as far as, you know, what the exact work schedule was and where the road was actually going. They resurveyed it and resurveyed it up until the, until they started the machines. Basically mm-hmm. you see that in the film when, when they're like, wait a second, we, we can't have them do this anymore. And because of that meeting and, and that organization at that village, it wasn't an official organization, but how they organized to talk and, and, and get together and, and kind of collectively negotiate. It was happening up until the last minute and, and, and they, they did negotiate and, and in the end, the road went through the field. It was initially surveyed to go through the middle of town, like through the houses and where the like, quote unquote, you know, commercial area was. It was never even designed, you know, always designed for walking. Never, you know, buildings would have had to come down <laughs> for that to happen. And, and it would have gone right through a community forest. And I'm glad that they were able to do that. But you see, you see this and, 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 and there was also confusion from that a little bit about whether we were representing the road crew with our cameras, the way that we initially started filming. <laughs> um, there was a little bit of miscommunication with the village thought that we were, we were there to intervene on their behalf. And they thought that we were there perhaps to, 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 as, as like an official record keeper for the, the government or the, or the the road construction company. I don't, there was a little bit of communication about who we were because oh, we just wow. kind of rushed in, but in the end, nothing untoward happened. Yeah. I mean, that woman, that, that, that moment you're talking about, you know, I credit our editor for using that as, as like the, the punctuation mark on the first scene with the, the road crew and the film, we just kind of gently coexisted <laughs> and, and, and nobody seemed to, tell us to turn the cameras off ever except for there was a police station that had moved into the area and had become more more had, had um you know added more police to the station at its capacity was growing yeah. because the road project was was taking off and so there was that aspect of it and they, they those authorities did at certain times tell us not to film around the police station they were the, the ones that were most concerned with what we were doing for whatever reason right. for example they didn't let us film <laughs> they didn't let us film their card games which was, you know, unfortunate because that's one of the 
I don't know, little side notes of, of, of life in the Himalaya is there's a lot of gambling. I mean, certain villages yeah. outlaw card playing altogether because it has, has become such a problem for village community and neighbors sometimes. But, um, but that was going on. And we kept that out of the film. <laughs> I would have liked yeah. to keep it, but I respected their desire to keep it out of the film, you know? Totally. You know, I think one of the, one of the beautiful things about documentary filmmaking is you know, the filmmaker can kind of learn just as much as the audience because they're, you know, going on this journey kind of unbeknownst, you know, you know, you don't know where you're going to end up sometimes. So I'll, I'll pose the question to you. What did you learn from this film and from your time, you know, following the, the construction of this road? What did you take away from it now being removed from the project for so long? That's a great question. I came to this project as interested in the content and, and what was happening locally and, and a strong desire to give these villagers their own voice and the road construction crew, like all sides. I was interested in, in unraveling it from a kind of voyeuristic perspective. If you really look at it, you know, totally observing, not getting too deep into the internal monologue mm-hmm. that everybody was going through. So, you know, that was one lesson for me as like just storytelling technique, whether that's successful or not. And it was difficult to, bring the film together it's what we always wanted but it was something that in the edit room we were fighting a lot about we don't really know why we don't see the we don't get the motivation for the individual characters because we don't know what they're thinking in the moment ever we just see them and little you know it, it kind of builds through the film and i think ultimately we found a structure that that worked for the mode of storytelling that we were trying to say but i think if there was anything I would have done differently now that I know what I know is that I would have at least recorded a small, short audio interview with each of the people who are the, like the main protagonists in, in each particular episode, if not to include it on the film, but just to have it so that I could, I could, I could understand what they were going through and maybe use the visual material to, you know, emphasize that side of their story. Yeah. Being impartial is impossible. We always have our bias as filmmakers. So, you know, as much as me wanted to say like, Oh, I'm, I'm giving the mic to Mikma and her kids, or I'm giving the mic to, you know, this, you know, this construction, this assistant construction crew laborer, or I'm giving the mic to uh, these guys on this bus that run, that operate the bus. But in the end, I was also showing like, this is kind of crazy what's happening and how it's happening. <laughs> you know, I think that comes through. Right. <laughs> like we're not, totally. we're not, we're being critical, but we're being, criti- we're being critical with kind of an open style, but we're definitely, you know, we definitely have our ideas that this is kind of like a, serve, let this film serve as somewhat of a warning for the future without saying, you know, in 10 years, there'll be, high rises and <laughs> and diesel semis running through the village. You know, I don't think it's, you know, we're not like pretending the worst, although in the, in, in the end, we think that there's a lot at stake to be lost if the future isn't navigated with care and conscientiousness. Absolutely. I think you, you guys pull it off great. I walked away feeling all those things. So I think, I think you guys did a great job. It's really a treasure to watch and it was just i learned a lot i'll say that bato it's an incredible documentary my friends check it out it's going to be available october 23rd 
through the 25th at the Austin Film Festival. Visit austinfilmfestival.com for details and tickets. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, Lucas is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three. We'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor, E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. All right, we're back on Film Forward, everybody. We're talking with Lucas Millard. He's the co-director of the film Bato, which is playing at the Austin Film Festival. Lucas is about to give us three film recommendations, films that have inspired him or inspired his work. Lucas, sir, let's get your first one. Yeah, sure. Well, these three are films that specifically inspired Bato. And they're films that I talked mm-hmm. to co-director Kate Stryker about as well. So we, we both kind of agree these were kind of foundational films for our thinking about our approach to documentary. And the first one comes out of the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Labs, Lucian Casting's Taylor and Alicia Barbash's Sweetgrass, which is, in my mind, it's a just an exceptional piece of gentle and immersive filmmaking. It tells the story of a pair of modern-day cowboys that take a herd of sheep into the mountains. And it's one of those, it's a, it's also a disappearing world style story where um, I'm not even sure if they still wrangle these sheep anymore because it was as related in the movie, perhaps one of the, the last mountain pastures for this crew to take. Um, and it was, it was just their last ride. Yeah. It was just a very cinematic and beautiful and detail oriented portrayal of their story and, and, and in the same way you know it didn't include any interviews all net sounds it's been a while since i've seen it so i can't even recall if there's a soundtrack or not um because initially in our film we were we were going to i try don't think it. there was yeah we were going to try it without a soundtrack as well but we, we we eventually ended up realizing that the the soundtrack actually was a not only an integral but an opportunity for us to really expand our story a little bit, at least the tone of the story. I feel like the soundtrack in our film really helped. But anyway, our original idea for no soundtrack probably came from Sweetgrass, even though we didn't fulfill that initial goal. <laughs> so that's the first one. <laughs> I really loved it also. It's been a while since I've seen it. I, I wasn't able to revisit it, but when I did see it, it, it definitely stuck with me. Sometimes when I'm driving through the country, you know, and the hills, mm-hmm. I think about those guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or or if I see a sheep, <laughs> I think about the it, it definitely sticks with you. And it, it it has a perfect blend of, you know, like a lot like your film, you know, like you're learning about a world and a life that's completely different from ours. And then you're also totally gripped and on the edge of your seat. And then by the end your heartstrings are, you know, pulling. I see a lot of comparisons from sweet grass to to your film yeah it's 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 excellent choice i really really like this film yeah i I take that as the highest compliment yeah it's one of those films that really leaves you with that i don't know that taste in your mouth i mean the title is so evocative as well i really love 
the title, you know, mm-hmm. just transporting film experiences where you just kind of feel like you're riding along with them. All right, let's get your second one, sir. Number two would really be anything by Frederick Wiseman, but we chose um, <laughs> Action, um, which is a film he made in the 80s, just kind of poking around Aspen one winter, focusing not so much on the skiing, but more the skiing culture and the culture of, as most Frederick Wiseman's do, the in- institution of Aspen and w- what that means. So there's a lot of funky clothes because it's uh, the 80s and the sweaters are just a joy to watch in that film. And also <laughs> I remember there's a pretty strong scene. Uh, there's a recurring character that he comes back to this quack doctor who runs this phone bank. <laughs> this, it's, it's like, I've never, I, I remember growing up hearing my parents talk about quacks and like what a quack that was. I feel like that, that description is, is, is kind of disappeared from our 21st century dialect, American vernacular. But, uh, but then to actually see one doing it, you know, shamelessly kind of ripping people off <laughs> and posing as a doctor and doing it on camera, no less. I mean, it was it, it just just the moments that, that Wiseman can capture through his kind of just very patient filmmaking, it, it, you know, he's he's he ha- he has become an institution himself and um his output is incredible and it's great he's he's still around and he's still making films at, i mean he must be 90 by now i'm not sure but um just an amazing spirit and a true hero of the documentary forum yeah i'm a fan of his but i have not seen this film but i'm going to check it out because i recently just reread hunter s thompson's writings about running for sheriff in aspen so I knew I've known about this documentary, and after rereading that, I was like, I want to, I want to go and watch Wiseman's talk about Aspen now because I think it'd be a good like period to my 2020 Aspen journey from LA. <laughs> yeah, I think we saw it when we were living in New York, in the city in New York, and I can't remember if it was an anthology or was one of the MoMA programs, but they were showing a lot of his films, and this is the one we ended up, you know, working with our our schedule. And I've tried to seek out, I, I would watch all of his films, but they're, they're not all easy to view. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where they're available right now. His company, God bless him. You know, he came up with a business model that worked for him and, and they, you know, they, they self-distribute all of their films. So yeah, they're tough to find. If you can everyone, yeah. but I, 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 I don't know how easy it is to, to find. And especially now that we're in, you know, with theaters closed everywhere, you know, we don't have the opportunity to, for all these right. special things that we used to have. But he's one that they usually, there's always a retrospective like in, in film festivals. I think he should be, he's, he should still be relevant for documentary film festivals these days. Oh yeah, he's a legend. He's one of the greats. All right, Lucas, your third and final. So the final one, I actually had to go back and rewatch because it's been so long since I've seen it, but, but I remember it making such a strong impression on me, you know, 10 years ago, if I'm honest, I started thinking about making a documentary in Nepal, probably around 2010. Didn't start actually with the current documentary of Bato until 2013. As I said, when Kate and I went and revisited and, and, and were kind of the, the light bulbs came on. So the third film I, I, I chose was a film by the Austrian filmmaker, Michael Glauiger, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but an amazing filmmaker who had just a an eye for 
subject and story that I felt immediately connected to in his mode of filmmaking. Like all of these, all of these films are documentaries and they're all somewhat non-traditional documentaries, which is what interests me as a film goer, you know, and that's part of the reason we made our film with, you know, no talking heads and no voice of God narrator guiding us through. Mm -hmm. And Michael, and, and, and I actually went back and watched this film that came out, it was a 2005 film called Working Man's Death. It kind of highlights five different settings of different wage workers, I guess you would call it. There's like a Ukrainian coal miner. There's a wet market in, in Africa where they're uh, basically selling live cows and butchering them on spot. And then there's like a shipyard in South Asia and this Chinese steel factory and he, he photographs the conditions and then he includes these portraits of different people from the locations in his different settings and then he has these little kind of vox poppy type sit down you know tell us your story snippets he doesn't really stay with characters the film's not so much about characters as it is about situations and just the struggle that people go through mm -hmm. on a basis just the non-stop hard work that people <laughs> have to do and you know 90 yeah. percent of the world that you know are 10 percent in the commercial corporate environment that we live in and, and so it, it just tells these kind of heartbreaking stories of, of just difficult conditions people have to work in and it's so cinematic the way that the, the camera is framed and the way that the interviews are conducted it's just like each frame tells an amazing story. And the portraits that he used, that, that was an idea that I think we took and we used in Bato because at the end, the credit roll contains all these portraits. And I wanted to include more and more and more, but we, we got some in in the credit roll. We didn't really find a way to make them work within the structure of our specific storytelling. And then also what I didn't remember from the film, which I was pleasantly surprised to, to, to rediscover was that the soundtrack is composed by Jean Zorn and it is so good. Mm. It's syncopated yeah. and just beautifully, it's not used a lot. It's usually, it's just used as mostly used as, as a transitional element between stories where there's these archival montages that are included. And those are the more musical moments, but it's all timed to people banging hammers. And because of the Ukrainian and the Chinese stories, there's a lot of kind of communist propaganda <laughs> films that are incorporated into the, the fabric of the scene. I mean, it, it's just, it's a really great film that's kind of non-traditionally put together. It's very artistically contrived, but very impactful and, and full of pathos, which is yeah. hard to do and hard to keep entertaining. Like it's, it's a formula we tried and it's, it's difficult to pull off as we know, because we have, we fought with our story consultants and our editors about how to how to create our story in Bato, we had initially five separate stories in the can. So I think it was this, you know, working man's death. It's kind of like filmmaking is we borrow ideas, right? I mean, that's how we we, we borrow and change. Absolutely, constantly remixing the same story. I mean, that's kind of a cliche. There's at least six stories, right? If not seven. <laughs> totally. But yeah, Glauiger's films. This one in particular, he has a few that he made 
he unfortunately passed of malaria in Northern Africa about five years ago. Oh man. Um, which was tragic at the time, but now with these times, it's kind of like, maybe it was a blessing. He didn't have to live through, <laughs> through COVID. <laughs> right. Working Man's Death, I think it's available on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it, like, I think a couple years ago. So check it out if you can. It really it really is a masterful, masterful piece of filmmaking. Yeah. Three excellent, excellent choices, uh, Lucas. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those. Lucas, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for making your film, Bato. I really, really loved it. And I hope everybody else will, too. I'm sure they will. It's going to be available once again October 23rd through the 25th at the Austin Film Festival. Visit austinfilmfestival.com for details and tickets. You can also follow us at LA Diversity Film Fest on Instagram. We'll be plugging it so you can stay up to date with that. Lucas, thanks again, man. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.